Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to Privacy and Cybersecurity Law Fundamentals. Uh, Jared and I are going to introduce ourselves, and then we'll get right into the, the content of this. My name is Scott Garland. I am currently with Affiliated Monitors, which is a compliance monitoring company and compliance consulting company. Part of what I focus on is cyber as well. Before that, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office for 14 years where I started out in the cybercrime unit and then moved on to the national security unit where I became the deputy chief, the acting chief, and was the national security cyber specialist. Before that, I did essentially the same sort of cybercrime work at the Department of Justice in Washington, DC. And um, that followed my being at a couple of law firms where I did high tech litigation, which was mostly criminal um, and some civil as well. It involved cybersecurity too. Jared? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Jared Reinheimer. I'm the chief of the Data Privacy and Security Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. Um, we have been in the office probably oh, about eight years or so, um, the chief for uh, about half a year. Um, in the office, um, we do a lot of civil law enforcement of data breach notification statutes, general unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And um, yeah, it's a great place to be. Um, yeah. All right. You want to take it away, Scott? Um, yeah. Why don't we move to the uh, the next slide then? So um, Jared and I understand that I think the majority of our audience consists of law students um, and that there's a good number of people who are early in their career, their legal careers as well. So what we wanted to do was to start out with describing the difference between cybersecurity and privacy. A lot of times people conflate the two terms. But um, there and there is a lot of overlap. But on the other hand, there are a lot of differences as well. Um, when I think of cybersecurity, what I think about is all of the measures that an organization takes to protect sensitive data. And that could be any type of sensitive data. That could be personal identifying information. That could be trade secrets, confidential business information, classified information. And the goal is basically to keep people out who are not supposed to be there have controls over the systems to make sure that people inside and outside aren't doing things that they're not supposed to do on it. So when we talk about controls, we're talking about passwords and firewalls, software patches, security policies, and also training of um, employees as well. It's really focused on all the information that a business has, how to set up a program that protects it, and also um, response to what happens when there is some sort of a breach. Jared, you deal more with privacy. Do you want to talk about how pri what privacy consists of and how it contrasts to cybersecurity? Sure. So um, privacy, uh, some people sort of think of cybersecurity as like part of privacy, but I think it's, it's separate in some ways. There still is a goal to protect sensitive information. Um, it's more focused on individual rights, I think, um, that are exercised by specific people. Um, and so uh, that it, it, it's more about honoring the wishes of whom, whomever it is that is, um, is giving you information to share that information with other people. Essentially, what people often think of is like respecting someone's 
privacy. I think um, there are a lot of different privacy frameworks. We'll talk about a number of them, um, but many of them are based on consumer consent and giving specific rights to consumers about what information um, uh, groups have about them. Security can be a part of that. I mean, if, if there is a security incident where information is released, that can be a privacy issue, but it, it goes much farther than that too. And I just put some examples here of things like, you know, the cookie banners have been popping up a lot more recently in light of GDPR. Um, there are options about whether ads can be personalized or not. Your location settings determine where and who gets what information on your phone. Social media settings determine who gets to see what it is you're posting. All these sorts of things are methods of implementing um, privacy. Um, and uh, we'll talk about that some more. Jared, would you say that privacy is deals with uh, a narrower um, set of information than cybersecurity because privacy deals more with personal identifying information and personal preferences than like business information? Or do you think that that's not quite accurate? I think if you're if you're approaching it from like the perspective that I often do, Security is often focused on a smaller set of information, but that's just because a lot of our offices focuses on specific consumer information, right? So a lot of these security statutes are limited in the type of information that's protected under them. Um, whereas privacy is, you know, any information that is identifiable to a person. Um, however, the, um, you know, cybersecurity goes beyond that in that it also is um, efforts to protect trade secret information, efforts to protect um, you know, proprietary information, um, and also information about business partners and things like that, which is much broader than just the consumer focus. So I think it's yes and no. <laughs> okay. Um, since so many of the people who are in the audience are at the beginning of their careers and uh, or haven't even quite started their careers yet, we thought it would be worth it to take a, a second to talk about what type of careers you can really pursue within cybersecurity and privacy. So on the cybersecurity um, area, uh, I think there's really kind of a similar breakdown for both cybersecurity and privacy, but um, we'll start with cybersecurity. And there we're talking about law firm and in-house counsel. And to some extent, they do some of the same things. They handle um, and advise a company or an institution like a university or a nonprofit about what to do if they are breached. Um, how do you, what sort of investigations do you do into the um, breach? How do you handle notifications to um, any of the regulatory industries or to the um, people whose information was affected? How do you advise a company on how to set up a cybersecurity? Um, practice as well? And how do you implement policies within that um, protect the information? Then there's something that's called product counsel. Um, product counsel is an interesting job because there, uh, what product counsel does is to meet with people within a company who can come from a broad variety of places within the company about various products and services that they want to offer and advise them about whether doing so implicates any legal rights of other people or intersects with any laws. So for example, imagine that you're a tech company 
and um, you want to uh, put in a component into a product that reads biometric information, um, like a fingerprint, to determine whether the person is authorized. Well, product counsel might advise the company about whether that's legal and what you're allowed to do with the biometric information afterwards. Um, lawyers are also employed at forensic investigation companies. These are places that um, a company will hire when they're breached to come in and look at the laptops, look at the computers, um, look at the computer networks and help to determine what was taken, how was it taken, what can be done to fix the um, the systems, and um, what other information is, is useful for them to know as a result of that. On the government side of cybersecurity, there are um, a variety of jobs that you can have. One is prosecutor agent. This is where I spent most of my career. Being somebody who investigates what happens when um, a company has, or another institution, thinks that there was a, a breach, whether the breach came in from inside or outside, and what trying to determine what type of laws might have been broken and how the agents are allowed to um, investigate that and what tools they can use to investigate that to determine whether there was a crime. There are a number of um, FBI agents and also DHS agents and others um, who are also lawyers um, or not lawyers, but still nevertheless do these sorts of investigations. On the flip side, you have defense attorneys who um, are basically protecting the um, uh, defendants in these cases. And then you have regulators. And um, Jared, I think, would be one example of a, a regulator. But there are regulators at a variety of different agencies that we'll talk about that are thinking about um, what sort of federal and state regulation should apply in cybersecurity. And it's not just, um, you know, uh, it's not just agencies that you would think are concentrating on cybersecurity, because there are also people at the Federal Trade uh, Commission, at the um, Securities and Exchange Commission, and actually at a wide variety of state agencies as well, who are looking at how to regulate companies' behavior in that way. Uh, and then there are a lot of jobs in the military, uh, because they get involved not only with the sorts of things that um, Jared and I are going to be talking about here, but the sorts of intrusions that uh, I dealt with when I was at the U.S. Attorney's offices, which involve um, nation states trying to go after the computer systems of government systems, but also increasingly private systems as well, and then trying to figure out what sort of offensive capabilities um, they can employ. And then finally, um, on the cybersecurity ad, there are people who are employed by like the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, the ACLU and the like, who are interested in protecting civil liberties in this area. Jared, do you want to talk? Uh, sure. Am I still there? I hope I am. <laughs> um, looks like I froze here. We can hear you. Okay, good. All right, great. Um, so yeah, on the privacy side, you know, there's many of many sort of similar roles. I would say the law firm in-house counsel. Uh, you know, breach investigations and notification um, happens often on the privacy side. Often uh, there's a question of, 
you know, whether notification needs to be provided to consumers, things like that, which I'll, I'll talk about um, a little later. Um, a lot of privacy laws that are coming into place require the implementation of different privacy programs or um, counseling uh, companies on what they should be doing with respect to specific information to comply with the law. Um, and often, you know, implementing those privacy programs is something that uh, attorneys will do. Similar product counseling happens um, on the privacy side as to whether uh, something might violate the law. Um, if, uh, you know, uh, similar biometric things and various other sorts of uh, collection of information um, uh, would be, would fall under that. Um, the mergers and acquisitions is actually sort of an area that I don't think people always think about relating to privacy, but it's it's very common um, in that, you know, one asset that a lot of companies have these days is data um, and information. And so there is, um, there's often negotiation over, you know, how that data gets transferred, what stays, what goes, how it gets implemented into new systems, um, all sorts of questions around that, um, as well as questions about due diligence with respect to the law um, surrounding privacy before those transactions happen. Um, and then contracting and vendor management, I think, are um, important areas for privacy as well, uh, given that a lot of the privacy laws require um, specific terms to be put into contracts and also require oversight of specific vendors that might have, uh, might obtain information. One area that's um, really important uh, with respect to that is um, what's called cross-border data transfers. So because different countries have different types of privacy laws, there are developing sort of regimes about how information can be um, transported, say, from the United States to Europe or um, from Europe to China. Um, all that sort of stuff um, is uh, an area of law that is uh, big and has to be considered um, in, in a lot of these deals. Um, then there's the government roles, regulators um, like me, the FTC, the SEC, um, and advising agencies. So um, those can be you know, independent, specific, governmental agencies that are ad, like responsible for privacy of constituent information, but there's also, um, you know, organizations like the California Privacy Agency, which has just started, um, which uh, has its own specific role with respect to regulating and um, uh, enforcing privacy laws. And then of course the public interest side exists um, for privacy as well. Um, uh, organizations like the ACLU advocate for privacy, Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, all sorts of other uh, organizations are there. Um, okay, anything to add on that, Scott? Uh, no, I think that's a good summary. So one of the things that Jared and I wanted to talk about with it very briefly is what sort of skills and experience you need to do it, really any of these jobs there. I think there's a common misconception that in order to go into cybersecurity or privacy law, you need to be a techie. You need to be somebody with a background in programming or the hard sciences um, to do that, especially computer technology. 
while it is true that my background did start in computer programming, my ultimate undergraduate degree was in economics. And while Jared, I think your undergraduate degree was in physics, again, you weren't involved with computer programming um, up front. Um, and a number of the people that we work with had backgrounds in history or English, um, people who really didn't have the sort of technological background you might think that you need. What you do need is the ability to talk to techies. You have to have the ability to talk to people who have very specialized skills, to ask them hard questions and often ask them over and over again, can you explain that so that a, um, a high school student could understand this, or even better, a junior high person could understand it. When they give you a lot of um, um, technical information back after that, ask the same question over and over again and get it to a point where you can understand it, often by use of analogies and metaphors and similes, reframe it, simplify it, and then be able to summarize it and explain it to other people and then map it to the statutes that um, are involved. That's what it really is. It's um, basically a translation job. Um, I think the other things that you have to be willing to do is willing to work in an area where the law is changing, um, sometimes on a weekly or even daily basis, so that um, what you thought, first of all, in a lot of areas, you may not know what the law is, and so you're trying to figure out what the most applicable statutes or precedent is. Then once you figure that out, the Supreme Court or another government agency or court could rule in an opposite way, so that everything that you thought beforehand now has to change and your advice has to change as well. And then on top of that, you have to be willing to stay current because things are changing on a daily or weekly basis. You need to be willing to do a lot of reading. Um, any other skills um, or experience you think, Jared, that you need to, to succeed in this area? No, I think just being um, being open to, to learn a lot of new information is, is a really beneficial thing. Um, I remember when I was in law school, a lot of people would say, oh, I, you know, oh, I didn't do math because, uh, or I went to law school because I didn't want to learn math. Um, just like kind of set that aside. You're not going to do any math in this job, but, you know, the, uh, like learning about technical stuff is something that everybody can do. And so I think it's, um, it's uh, just kind of re reframing that viewpoint is a big step towards doing a lot of this stuff. Um, Okay, so well, I think we're going to go into like kind of some of the more more detail about different um, aspects of cybersecurity and privacy. So we'll talk about cybersecurity first and privacy, and just here's kind of like the who, what, uh, when sort of information um, about cybersecurity. And this is really just like a basic overview, I think, of U.S. law is what we're really focused on here. Um, some of these are going to be maybe like useful resources later on, um, uh, and I put some links in here as well that, that I think will hopefully be helpful if you need to look up these laws. So with cybersecurity, um, I have to admit that I took this little chart from another presentation that was created by someone who was not me in our office. <laughs> um, but And, and uh, you can see from here that there's like a lot of people who do regulation. Um, I think, you know, 
inside that blue bubble are the lists, I think, of some states that have a pretty prominent role in this area, but that list is changing as uh, as time goes on. Um, and I'll just note that a lot of the states will work together on large cybersecurity incidents um, and investigate as a group. Um, so you may not be dealing with seven different or, you know, 20 or 30 different states at a time, but a, an entire large group of states that are all working together. Um, outside of that, there's also a bunch of different federal regulators, um, HHS, uh, Health and Human Services, um, you know, works with health information. Federal Trade Commission is kind of a general regulator. The FCC works with telecom. DOJ does a lot of the criminal enforcement, um, uh, the banking regulators and the SEC also um, are involved and there are specific laws that apply to those situations. Um, so here's sort of like a better overview of all of that stuff. So the Federal Trade Commission and the states are largely responsible for sort of general principles of cybersecurity among many companies and implementing security programs. And that, um, uh, I'll kind of get into what that generally requires on the next slide, but it is, um, those are the, I would say like the, the entities that have the most general applicability when it comes to civil law enforcement. I think the DOJ and to a much lesser extent, some state states um, also are responsible for prosecuting the people who actually like commit the cyber crimes who are the cause of a lot of these incidents. Um, and then you can think about the rest of the, the folks as like regulators of specific sections of the economy. So HHS does healthcare and they enforce HIPAA. The banking regulators work as a group, um, you know, and they all have their own sort of separate jurisdictional oversight. Um, with the CFPB kind of like encompassing everything. <laughs> um, so OCC is the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the Federal Reserve. Um, there's a few others that I didn't put in here, I think. Um, they, they work with a law called the Graham-Leach-Wiley Act. Um, the FCC um, has some regulations surrounding the telecommunications industry with respect to customer uh, networking information. And this SEC, of course, works with securities and, and trading information. So what are your responsibilities under the law? Well, um, they can kind of be broken down into two big areas. One is breach notification. So when there is a, um, an incident that may affect certain types of information, you have to notify um, the consumer, most importantly. And uh, you also have to notify, in some states, the attorney general's office as well. Um, all 50 states have laws about breach notification. They are similar, but they're not all the same. Um, it's not a uniform law uh, by any means. Um, they largely concern breaches of things like your social security information, your um, financial account numbers, uh, your Sometimes date of birth is included, sometimes email address is included. And so this has really developed into its own sort of industry, I think. Um, there are uh, 
you know, when you get a cyber insurance policy, they may specify, you know, a particular firm or that they will decide on what firm to work. And, and a lot of those firms know how to do this sort of in and out and do it all the time. Um, our office gets probably about 3,000 of these breach notifications a year. Um, many other state AGs get them as well. Um, and there are like specific requirements that needed to be included in these breach notifications um, about things like credit freezes, sometimes credit monitoring is required, um, and uh, there, uh, there's uh, you know sometimes some other requirements as well. And I'll just note also that there are a few subject area specific federal statutes that have breach notice requirements too. Um, the Grand Leach Bliley Act has a has a breach notification requirement. The HIPAA has a breach notification requirement, and those um, sometimes differ a little bit from the state laws, and they can be treated differently under state laws as well. So, like in Massachusetts, for example. There's a section of the law that says if you comply with GLBA, if you comply with HIPAA, then you're also complying with the Massachusetts law with respect to consumer notification. So breach notification is sort of a big area um, for the state AGs, for, uh, for um, law firms that work on it exclusively, um, and also for investigative firms that do a lot of work investigating the breaches to understand what happened. And then I think the second area that's really what is required is that um, organizations have to maintain a reasonable level of data security. And so the Federal Trade Commission has come in on this, I think. And you know, if you don't do something like this, they're going to consider it what's called an unfair deceptive actor practice under their under the law that the FTC enforces. Um, Massachusetts is unique in that it has data security regulations that are applicable to anybody who has um, those types of personal information I was mentioning before about Massachusetts residents. And then a lot of the different sectoral regulators also have their own regulations. There's HIPAA regs, there's GLBA regs, there's SEC, FCC, and um, the Federal Trade Commission has regs for specific financial services industries that are under its um, purview. So not general regulations, but ones for specific industries. So that's all a lot. Um, and then of course there's international law, uh, which may apply in certain instances too. Um, so here's sort of the relevant statutes. I'm not gonna get into this into a whole lot of detail, but um, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has the unfair and deceptive acts and practices law. Every state has a similar law on the books. Um, so there, some of them are, only unfairness, some of them are only deceptiveness, but a lot of them are used to enforce companies maintaining reasonable data security practices. Um, I mentioned the breach notification laws, data security regs. Um, some of the, I, 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 I doubt I got all the criminal statutes that the DOJ enforces with respect to um, cybersecurity, but um, there's some here, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the Stored Communications Act, identity theft laws, uh, access device fraud, wire fraud. I don't know, anything else that comes to mind, Stop. when it comes to DOJ criminal enforcement? Wiretaps. Wiretaps, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's a pretty good list you got there. Okay. Um, and um, then the sectoral regulators, like I, like I said, have their own specific rules. So 
HHS has a HIPAA security rule, which tells you what security you have to have in place if you're a covered entity under HIPAA. And then the Federal Trade Commission has put in its own health breach notification rule, which is um, for apps that collect health information but may not be covered under HIPAA. So just keep that in mind if you happen to counsel one of those companies. Um, for financial services, there's this thing called the interagency guidelines, which were put out by um, the FCC, I'm sorry, the OCC, the Fed, and a bunch of other banking regulators, they put out the same set of guidelines for everyone, which is convenient. Um, the Federal Trade Commission, also under the grand leash flyley law, oversees some financial services industries, so they have their own safeguards rule. And then, um, to Scott's point earlier in the presentation, the uh, there are some state regulators that are that are getting involved in this, namely the New York Department of Financial Services has its own cybersecurity regulations, and they are um, they've been pretty um, active in the past few years, I would say, and very interested in enforcing those regs. And then, of course, the FCC has rules. Um, they're making a proposed update, I think, to their breach notification rules. So I link that here. And the SEC is doing a proposed rule as well. I think that's with respect to breach notification. So that's cybersecurity. I will. Um, the one last thing is just kind of to give everybody an overview of the type of things that often lead to breaches and are elements of what might constitute a useful cybersecurity program. These are things to think about, like if you're not doing or if your clients aren't doing, you may want to start think about, thinking about doing them. <laughs> so uh, preventing loss of devices, accidentally giving information to people or um, sending emails to the wrong person, those sorts of things can often lead to data breaches. Um, this second category is a very common one. Um, sometimes it's just a lack of training uh, or a lack of employees to wanna adapt. Um, encryption is something that's called out in our regs specifically, and you should be encrypting your data at this point. Um, some people like to delay software system updates because doing so may interfere with um, you know, production or, or product rollouts, things like that. But sometimes that can lead to security vulnerabilities. Uh, We've definitely had instances where people use the same password, like all the administrators use the same password. It's a bad practice. Um, try not to do it. Um, some companies don't have any cybersecurity policies at all. Um, should really think about doing that. Some companies don't know what devices people have. Um, that's what the asset inventory is. Um, some organizations don't employ two-factor authentication, which is pretty, common these days um, for folks to do it. Um, not doing it allows someone to break into your computer uh, with just your username and password, which can make it pretty easy. Um, sometimes there, what I mean here by sloppy storage configuration and policies is that if you don't have data, um, it's a lot easier to avoid a data breach. Um, <laughs> If you have a lot of data, but you don't know where it is, then you're going to have to, if you find out that your system's been affected, you're going to have to start looking for where, where that person went, what they did, and um, what information was affected. And that's going to take a lot more time. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of organizations that still send really sensitive information over email, um, which 
in some cases it's encrypted and that's great. In other cases, it's not. Um, you know, typically it's it's not. Some of the larger email providers have been kind of turning that function on, but it's hard to know in those circumstances. So think about using things like um, document download platforms that encrypt the communications, or um, there's also encrypted email available on a lot of uh, a lot of communication uh, platforms. And then, you know, some other causes of incidences are social engineering. That's very common. Phishing is when somebody will um, try to get um, an employee's information by, um, you know, trying to trick them, essentially. And spear phishing is when somebody does their research on a specific employee and really tries to get information from them. Say, you know, they imitate the CEO's email address, send an email and say, hey, you know, send me all of the the employees' names and social security numbers in a list. I need it right now. Um, ransomware very common these days, um, and uh, often you know there's a new variant these days where the ransomware companies will take all of your data first and then encrypt all of it. So you got to pay the ransom for them to um, first of all decrypt the information and also for them not to post it uh, publicly on the internet. Um, don't rule out employees stealing things. <laughs> Happens a lot. Um, or sabotaging the company. Um, and then um, vendor failure, over failing to oversee vendors is actually something that people I don't think, think of as often. Um, I think sometimes people think, oh, the contract is good enough. Um, but it really is uh, something that certainly required under our regs and required under other um, other regs as well, is that if you give a vendor information that belongs to somebody else or belongs to you, you really have a responsibility to make sure that the vendor is taking that care with that. And then the last thing I'll mention here is what's called credential stuffing, which is basically, you know, there are large lists of emails and passwords online, and people will try to use that to get into various um, systems. Um, because people will reuse their usernames and passwords in other places. So that's where two-factor authentication is useful, um, but it can sometimes lead to some really bad results. Say, you know, a particular system administrator just happens to use the same username name and password. Somebody logs into their account and then they've kind of got access to the whole, the whole company's network. So anything else that's worth mentioning on like breaches, cybersecurity sort of stuff? Um, I'm going to give a quick plug for a resource that our audience members can take a look at. Verizon every year does a survey um, that is really, really comprehensive about the types of um, vulnerabilities and attacks that are used and ranks them by how frequent they are. It's probably about 70, 80 pages worth of information. It's totally free. It's online. Um, and so you should search that out. And if you're not finding it, if you go to my LinkedIn page, I have a post about it probably about a half year ago, but it's worth taking a look at that. Yeah, yeah. It is useful. And they're, they do a lot of like case studies in that too, where they kind of run walk through what happened in specific instances and how it could have been better. Um, Great. Okay. So that's cybersecurity. So we'll talk briefly about privacy, kind of the same format, you know, who does the regulating, what you need to do, and then the relevant statutes that apply. So privacy 
is, you know, a lot of the same regulators are involved with privacy things. Um, one thing worth mentioning here is that, you know, the FTC and the states generally are using, say, their unfair and deceptive acts and practices laws to enforce privacy. But there is, um, you know, lately a number of states have been passing their own specific privacy laws that have specific requirements. Um, those are, as of today, California, Virginia, Colorado, Connecticut, and Utah of all states. Um, there, especially with privacy, there's some real like international regulations to pay attention to. If your company gets data from people in Canada or in Europe or um, in the UK, uh, there will be um, GDPR or GDPR-like sort of um, requirements that are required of your company. So the GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, I believe that's right, um, which applies to the European Union. And um, the UK has its own version, which is very similar. Uh, the reason I mentioned Ireland here is because um, a lot of tech companies have some form of them like incorporated in Ireland either like their parent company or some sort of tax vehicle that's put into Ireland because of favorable tax laws. Um, and so the Irish um, data protection commissioner sort of has a lot of, a lot of power in that area. Um, so it's worth kind of paying attention to, to what they're doing there. And then, you know, China just this past year passed um, its own sort of data protection law that I think is a lot of people are really struggling with trying to comply with lately. Um, so it's worth knowing that it's there. I'm not going to go into like the relevant statutes, but I think it's you should keep all those in mind. Um, and then this, you know, the similar sort of regulators for um, the same uh, sectors of the economy um, also are are doing their own privacy regulations. So, what do you need to do for privacy? There's kind of a bunch of different buckets. Each of these statutes will have some of some, maybe all of these things. Um, generally, privacy regimes will have a bunch of consumer rights that can be exercised by the consumer. Often the consumer needs to be notified of what you're collecting information for, um, who you're gonna share it with, whether you're selling the data. And I put sold in quotation marks here because various states have various definitions of what se selling data means. It, can, it doesn't necessarily mean an exchange for money. It can be an exchange for valuable consideration. Um, so uh, just don't think of it colloquially as the way you might think of sold. Um, and how to exercise your rights under the law uh, also have to be disclosed. There um, is often an express consent requirement for processing what's called sensitive data. Sensitive data you know, varies from state to state, but usually includes the things you think would be sensitive, like your social security number, um, healthcare information, uh, sometimes gender is included, uh, sometimes um, uh, just information that might feel like more invasive of your privacy is often included in sensitive data. Um, you often, consumers often have a right to request that the company delete the information about them. Um, there's a right to opt out of sale, profiling, targeted ads, or sharing of their information. Uh, many states have a non-discrimination provision, which says that you can't 
say, charge somebody more for um, uh, exercising one of the other rights that they have. Um, uh, California has recently implemented a right to correct the information that might be um, kept by a company. You often have the right to limit the use, which is very similar to the opt-out. Um, there's a right to access for uh, getting a copy of your information so you can take it somewhere else. Um, and all these rights are typically not waivable. Um, and so you can't like sign a contract that says I'm giving all my rights away. Um, I talked about this before, but it really, the privacy laws apply to a lot more broad information than just you know, name, social security number, financial account number. They're often specified that you know, it's any information that could be used to identify someone um, is covered under these laws. Often the laws will um, include requirements about what's called data minimization, which means um, what I was stressing before, like you don't, don't keep information you don't need is essentially the data minimization principle. Um, privacy impact assessments are required to be done under some of these laws where you need to have somebody come in, analyze your company and figure out um, how you know, the information you keep might have an impact on the privacy of, of the people that it's about. And there are specific terms that often have to be included if you're going to get the contract, get contracts in place that might share the data that you're taking from consumers here. And there's other various requirements. Um, California has what a, a do not sell my personal information button needs to be on your website. Um, GPC means global privacy controls is something that some states are considering requiring, which is basically like one control that you can use to communicate to a bunch of companies that you don't want your information taken. Um, and then uh, some states have or, or are thinking about private rights of action, it's different areas. Um, uh, and then there are some um, exceptions for different types of businesses or types of data. So here's sort of the relevant statutes. Like I said, the UDAP, California statutes here, California has regs as well. Colorado statutes here, they have draft regs, Connecticut, um, Utah, and then Virginia. Um, and then there are sectoral ones too, um, financial services, the CFPB has a privacy rule, the FTC has a privacy rule specifically for motor vehicle dealers, HIPAA has a privacy rule, and then um, FCC and SCC. So that's that. I'll turn it over to Scott to do electronic evidence quickly. Um, and then uh, I think we'll leave some time for questions if, if, we, can, if we can do it. <laughs> Yep. Um, and one thing just to add on to what um, Jared was saying, that even though you guys may be practicing in Massachusetts and may think in these areas, oh, I should just look at what the Massachusetts regs are. Um, what you'll find is that there are, your clients will actually be under a lot of other different states regulations as well. Uh, and for that reason, most of the time we recommend that people look at what's happening in California, because most of those regulations deal with anybody who's doing a significant amount of business in um, California. And if your clients have uh, an interstate practice, they're doing business in California and they tend to set the trends as well. Um, so I'm gonna talk quickly about electronic evidence and um, I'm doing it for two purposes. One is that um, 
you may be working for the government and doing investigations and trying to figure out where can I find information about um, people who are involved with breaches or um, with privacy violations or really any other type of crime or a civil um, matter as well. Another reason that you might do this is that you may be advising a company who gets a request from government about um, types of information that they have. Um, but no matter what, anybody who's doing any type of lawyering at this point in doing litigation needs to understand the various types of information that's out there. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons you're going to get into electronic evidence. Sometimes it's going to be because, be because you don't know who did something, but you have a clue about it, maybe an email address or an IP address, and you want to learn more about them. Or you do know, have an idea of who did something, uh, and you want to find out what information they have in various places. So um, the various places that you're going to be looking at for electronic evidence are really three. One is the internet and all the companies that operate out on the internet. The second place, and I'll talk about some of these constituents in a second. The second place is networks. What information is located on the networks of your client's computers, um, some of which may be housed in-house, some of which may be housed by the big cloud providers like um, uh, Amazon or Microsoft, for example. Um, and what information is located on individual devices such as laptops, desktop computers, and cell phones. It's really easy to, when you think about electronic evidence, to think that um, it's all the same sort of stuff, but really the sort of investigations that you do using the internet um, get you different information and different types of information than what you do on a network and what you do on a computer and a cell phone. And the goal when you're doing these investigations is to link up what happened on the computer or cell phone to what happened on the network to what happened on the internet. Um, but it's worth it to know that each of these are areas that you're going to want to study um, and do more study about as well. On the internet, I'm just checking my time here. On the internet, um, the places you're going to look at are the ones that are listed here. Um, I don't know that we have enough time to go ahead and talk about these um, individually, but at the end, uh, I'm going to steer you to a couple of really, really good resources that, although they're about 10 years out of date, are going to give you a really good foundation for understanding what type of information you can get from, from these individual type places. But if we go on to the next slide. This is what I really wanted to focus on. There are a variety of methods of obtaining electronic evidence. And if you're going to be a prosecutor, you need to know which ones you can use to get what types of information. If you're going to advise organizations, you need to know the same information so that if you receive, for example, a subpoena that um, tries to get information that's not obtainable by a subpoena, you can object to it and object to it intelligently. Um, so let me let me give you the framework that we that we tend to think about. There are really four types of information that people try to get, um, or four types of electronic information that people try to get. 
The first type is what's called subscriber information. So I have a Gmail account. My subscriber information in my Gmail account basically consists of my name, the IP addresses that I've used, um, any phone numbers or physical addresses that I've associated with that account. You know, if I've I've let them know that my cell phone uh, number is this, that, or the other thing. So that's your subscriber information. That information is entitled to the least amount of protection and can generally be obtained by the government using a subpoena. Um, a subpoena does not require court approval to do it. Basically, any prosecutor can, can write a subpoena to, to get this type of information. The next level of information that requires protection is more sensitive than subscriber information, and that are all the sorts of um, records that a computer company keeps about you um, that do not include the contents of communication. So sticking with Gmail, um, you know, through Google, I have access to a variety of different services. Like I use their mapping service. I also might use their chat service. I might have also bought apps through Google. Information like that is often considered records subject to a 2703D order. And what that means is that refers to 18 USC 2703D. Um, you're going to want to look at 18 USC 2703 in detail. Um, and that can be obtained by showing reasonable suspicion that the information would be relevant to an ongoing investigation and it requires a court order from a court. If, on the other hand, a prosecutor wanted to get access to the contents of my emails, straight up, they would need a search warrant. And that's true basically in every jurisdiction across the country. If they wanted to get access to my emails on an ongoing basis so that they see every email that I send and every email that I receive, and maybe also the drafts that I'm that I'm uh, drafting, then what they would need is a wiretap. And that is basically a search warrant on steroids that requires not just your normal search warrant affidavit, but a whole bunch of other sort of assurances to the, go, uh, to the court that it's necessary to use the wiretap. And so I'm going to suggest that if you want to learn more about this, you're going to want to read up on 18 USC 2703, which deals with subpoenas, search warrants, and 2703D orders, and 18 USC 2511, which deals with wiretaps as well. Um, the other things that you're going to want to do is go to the federal rules of evidence and learn the rules about how you authenticate electronic evidence, because that's a whole other subspeciality and um, really worth looking. Go to the next slide. Um, I told you that we were going to talk about some areas where you can, or uh, resources where you can learn more. What I'm going to, the first place I'm going to direct you to is the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property section at the Department of Justice. You have the, uh, the link, the URL up there on the screen. When you go to that website, you can find two things in particular uh, that you want to look at. As I said, they're both about 10 years out of date, but they're going to give you the basics um, and you can update the research from there. One of them is the um, their guide on, uh, on uh, investigating network crimes. And that will tell you about a lot of the operative statutes. Some of them have been amended since then. Maybe there are new statutes, but none of these have been deleted. 
Um, and there may be new interpretations as well, but that's going to give you a good a good basis. The second guide that they have is a guide on um, obtaining electronic evidence, and that's going to get into much, much more detail about what I just told you about on the last slide. The next resource is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. This is a, an agency of the government that's basically been set up to help industry understand more about the risks that are posed to them through cyber threats and actually has a lot of resources that are worth reading. Um, and you can read them. They're in basic English, not a lot of legalese, not a lot of tech ease, um, and they can give you a really good background in a lot of the areas that we were talking about as well. For privacy information, you can't really beat the IAPP. They have a daily and I think a weekly um, email that is free and has really the top stories on privacy throughout the United States and around the world. Jared, I don't know, are there other, other places that you like to look at as well for privacy info? I mean, I think that's one of the, the better, better resources. Um, there, yeah, I, I can't think of anything right now that jumps out at me, but they, the IAPP also offers certifications that some people decide they, they want to pursue either for being a, you know, a privacy professional for U.S. or European law, or also they do it for um, technologists, and then a manager certification as well, which uh, a fair number of lawyers decide is worth it to get. So. There are also um, other types of, of groups like the steering, the, the committee that Jared and I are on, which is presenting this, the Privacy Cybersecurity and Digital Law uh, Association, both at the American Bar Association and at the Boston Bar Association, they tend to have good programs that you can learn more about various issues um, on. And um, the last thing is a lot of the cybersecurity companies run blogs and they tend to be fairly good and accessible to people. Some of them are, uh, are more techy than others, but I think what you'll do is as you go out, you'll look and find which ones speak to you the most um, at the level that you're coming from. And uh, they'll generally steer you to more technical resources. Um, I think that's a, probably a good place for us to stop and then see if there are any questions from the audience. I apologize that we've gone to about five minutes of the hour, but it does give us time to answer a few, I think. So if you have a question, you can just type it in the Q&A thing and we'll see if... Uh... See if we can answer. I'm not seeing any. I think maybe what we should do is give a plug for the next event that uh, you and I are hosting, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's March 8th. We are hosting a, um, I think it's, is it two hours? An hour and a half, two hours? I think. I think it's two hours. I um, I don't think the whole the thing is going to last all two hours. I think there's going to be like a like a networking sort of mingling thing at the end. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're going to just bring in some people who work in different areas um, in privacy, cybersecurity, digital law to talk about what they do to give people an, a good sense of what this what this work is like. Yeah, so we we definitely invite you to come 
watch that. And uh, we're both, I think, probably accessible via various ways. So if you want to contact us, let us know. Otherwise, thank you very much for your attention throughout this program. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you to Scott and Jared today. And if there are no more questions, it looks like, oh, someone just complimenting. That was very informative and interesting. So perfect. (laughs) What a good note to end on. Thank you all for coming today and have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. Take care.